All right, everyone. John is back for another edition of the Hollinger and Duncan podcast. And if you uh, are not a Dunkdown Prime subscriber, you can get every Hollinger and Duncan. We do one every week during the season. Danny and I do five episodes a week. You get Dan Feldman's Daily Dunks uh, as well. But we got a lot of news that's kind of piled up here since we've really locked in on the happening. We still got to get to some more of your mailbag questions at the end. But where do you want to start, John, in terms of discussing some of recent events? Uh, I think we need to start with the FIBA World Cup and USA Basketball. A disappointing fourth place yeah, finish, okay. to be uh, sure. So this is my, uh, I won't say 10,000 foot view. I'll call it a 10,000 mile view because I did not watch much of this tournament because I'm on vacation. And quite frankly, I didn't think that the Americans took it that seriously with the group that they sent. And now, in fairness, some of the other countries didn't have some of their best players either, although Germany had almost all of them. And so I just, I this is probably the last area that I actually have a fandom and I just knew that watching it was going to piss me off because of who was on the team coming in basically that that was kind of my thought and that's how, how it turned out in the end that's uh, so I'll call that my 10,000 mile view of things they lost differently from how I would have expected them to lose and what I mean by that is despite the fact that they went heavy on Anthony Edwards hero ball the offense in the game that ma- in the games that mattered was actually crazy efficient and they lost because they could not get any stops at all and in particular they got absolutely hammered on the glass yeah well so would not having any good fours or fives do you think maybe that's part of the reason for that uh, yeah they definitely they i think they got hurt more actually at the four and the three than they did at the five in the sense that okay you're trying to play a little bit small with like jaron jackson jr or even Bancaro at center, but then there was just no positional size across the other four positions either. And I thought that's where they really got hurt was that Josh Hart was really the only perimeter player they had who was a plus rebounder. And so you you already are taking a minus at the center position if you're playing Jaron at the five, but then you weren't making it up anywhere else either. And so they, they really got mashed on the glass. And then I think they just got mashed in positional size mashup matchups in general. Uh, I mean, random Lithuanian guys taking Austin Reeves on post-ups play after play. I think there was some schematic stuff too, that against a post-up, when you see a European team, what they will do a lot of times is play almost to the side of the player to force him baseline and then have a help defender sitting under the rim already because you, there's no illegal defense. And I think the U.S. scheme never never got to that point of, of being able to play post-ups that way. And I think that really hurt them. And I think that's a scheme that they have to use their limited time, so it's tough. But they that's something they have to master, especially if they want to play with a bunch of small skill guys. Yeah, I mean, if you just lo- look at this team, uh, and obviously we had a, a similar result in 2019 uh, as well. And you know, I, I, I wasn't watching it as closely, so I, I will refrain from some of the tactical elements uh, and discussing that. But not only do you have 
maybe, you know, you, you've got about 15 minutes a game of a decent center. I mean, Bobby Portis was actually in a position to, like, maybe have to play real minutes on this team. I actually uh, thought Bobby yeah. Portis should have played more because he was one of the guys who was rebound. rebounding. And in, FIBA, <laughs> yeah. and in FIBA ball, he's a pretty useful big because he can shoot from the perimeter, but he can also post up a switch. I mean, you think about it. Yeah. Bobby Portis is still better than 99% of the players out there in a, in a FIBA tournament, right? He's the star of, like, any other team almost. And so I, I think... We still had by far the most talented team. And even our second unit would have been the most talented team on its own, I think. And really, Canada would be the only other rival who who lost for yeah, a lot of the but, same but, reasons. Well, the I think. second the second unit was more talented than the first unit. That was that was another <laughs> That was that was one of the one of, one of the issues was that the second group might have been might have been better, at least before they um before they uh, switched up the starters a little bit, uh, I, yeah, I Mikhail, and, Bri- yeah. Mikhail Bridges was really good. I'll give him credit. Sure. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, so not only do you not have any size, right? I mean, the fours were Hart and Ingram, basically, yeah, and then, right? Like guys. So yeah. th- two things I think they didn't expect were Ingram and Cam Johnson being unplayable, right? I, I think that was just a I, wild card. I, I that was told a genuine you. surprise. I, that was not a surprise to me. Brandon Ingram, as they like, oh yeah, he'll be like the spot up shooter who will play the four and like be tough and rebound. Like Brandon Ingram as your second most important rebounder and help defender, not to mention the fact that he doesn't want to take a spot up. I mean, that's, yeah, big surprise. Like Brent, that's Brandon Ingram is a valuable player in the NBA because he can score on his own, but he's not as good at that as a lot of guys are and wasn't as good as the main engines on this team. And then he can't do anything else other than that and score and distribute like he really does nothing else well so yeah having that guy at the four that's a major problem yeah yeah and yeah they would have been better yeah they would have been better off playing him at two or three and then but they didn't have anyone <laughs> bigger yeah. to play at the four and cam johnson cam johnson to me reminded me of brooke lopez at the last world cup where you're coming in thinking this guy's going to be devastating in fiba ball and then for whatever reason it just did not happen yeah, so I mean, and if you just look at this roster overall, right? Like, okay, not only do you have very poor size, how many of the players would you say are actually like good defenders, even in the NBA, right? Like Jackson, Bridges, Ellipsis? Jackson, Bridges, and, you know, maybe Hart. Yeah, but but not when he's being asked to defend guys who are a lot bigger. And, you know, Reeves is okay, like chasing guys around screens, but, you know, he's not really a very good isolation defender. So, yeah, got uh, exposed. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. Walker, Walker Kessler would be the other one where they, again, because yeah. they, well, they didn't play small, so. they just didn't, they just didn't get to him. And could they have played Kessler Jackson? Could they have played Kessler Portis? You know, I think that, I think they leaned into, leaned into going all in on offense. And I mean, the offense was tremendous in the, in the, the games they lost were not because of the offense, but they just, they just could not get stops. You could argue some of that is, Make or miss league, one game or whatever. You know, Dylan Brooks goes crazy from three. Daniel Tice is hitting a bunch of jump shots in the in the semis against Germany. But at the same time, I mean, with the talent advantage the U.S. had, they should have been able to put up a more credible defensive performance. Yeah, and I think like the the history has shown that when the U.S. doesn't bring its best guys, they're like 50-50 at best to win this. I mean, let's not forget, too. Okay, yeah, they won in 2016. They won in 2021. Those teams, like, 
it was pretty ugly. Like 2016, they almost lost a couple of games in the first round. Like I actually thought they were in trouble. And then they kind of, they figured a few things out as far as playing a little bit more defense. And then 2021, of course, they lost to France and Nigeria in the run-up. But, you know, a lot of that was because they didn't have their team together. And, and they barely held on against France in the gold medal game. But they at least had, you know, that one guy in Kevin Durant who was able to bail them out. And Edwards had his moments in this tournament, but was is not that guy. And he also doesn't really add anything outside of his scoring. So, uh yeah i mean this is uh it's gonna be fascinating next year uh and as any other the old lions are gonna come in and save the day but then uh okay you know that's great if lebron and and steph and katie are gonna play uh but where is the next lebron and steph and KD for usa basketball that's uh it's a little bit of a concern tatum uh yeah but he's he's not those guys though yeah uh can will cooper flag and cam boozer be ready by 28 right exactly. yeah who, who's the other guy who said cam boozer yeah 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 yeah, we can hope. 28 Olympics are in LA. So we'll, I mean, we'll have our best, we'll have our best players. I'm not that worried about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you could just, uh, just grab them right out of, uh, you know the uh the, the ucla pickup runs <laughs> exactly um yeah so so it was disappointing i feel very pleased that i didn't interrupt my vacation to like spend a bunch of time watching these games uh, every day so uh yeah there we go. It, was an, it was an interesting tournament i uh no I, I, I i'm sure it was but i i think you know 10 months a year of basketball that's like enough <laughs> The Olympic, the Olympics, I'll, I'm sure I'll take more seriously. Mm-hmm. The Olympics should be a little bit more uh, viewer friendly in terms of the timing of the games, too. Yeah, well, I'm in Europe, so actually, this was this wouldn't that aspect. I don't have that excuse really. Uh, but uh, okay, let's let's move on here. What's our next biggest news item that that we have here? Is it the resting policy? Yes, the uh, the Clipper rule. <laughs> Yeah, well, Ty, Ty Lue is probably the most excited about that rule of anybody in that case. <laughs> Do you like how they made it that that it went back three years? So they make sure they made sure it got Kawhi. Uh, no, I didn't. I did not grasp that. Actually. Yeah, because Kawhi made the All Star team in twenty twenty one. Okay, there we go. So I, I, uh, I presume that was part of the motivation, and not so that they could find the Nets for DNPing Ben Simmons. <laughs> So my initial thoughts on this, I mean, should we go through just what the policy is? I, I've yeah. got it here in front of me. I'll, I'll sure. try to uh, make this quick. But so the fines are much greater than they used to be. I'm sure Danny and I will go over this with a fine tooth comb during the season. But uh, they can fine teams over a million dollars. And then for each successive violation, it's more than that. So I don't think we're going to see too many of these. You know, maybe a first violation of like 100K. Yeah. So here are the rules. Uh, first of all, it applies to star players defined as one who's been in all star are on an all nba team in any of the previous three seasons uh and you cannot have more than one star player unavailable for the same game now unavailable means basically that you are making a discretionary decision to rest that player and that that's where i I think a lot of this will will happen uh star players must be available for national tv and in-season tournament games and you can't rest guys more at home than on the road and you must refrain from a long-term shutdown or near shutdown when a star player stops participating 
in games, i.e. the, oh, you're tanking at the end of the season, let's shut this guy down rule. And that's that's about it uh, in terms of uh, what the rules are in terms of which games you're not allowed to miss. The interesting thing to me, though, is how like what are the exceptions to this and how are they determining whether a guy is injured or actually healthy enough to play and is being discretionarily rusted the thing to me is that by the time you get a month or two into the season every player has something and so i i just think it's pretty easy to skirt this with back spasms or tendonitis or whatever you want to call it um if if you wanted to i do yeah, think well, well what if so, so uh, i'll play devil's advocate here on on that one right because they the league i think there there are like certain of these circumstances in which the league like has to investigate it right i think that's interesting where in theory like it, it it will trigger an investigation for certain of these so let's say the the league and they can that could even include an independent doctor review so let's say the league is like well hey you're like you didn't where's the tweak that you suffered you know we we didn't see that you're healthy enough to play last game like what's what's going on this game like what's changed uh you know i think that's what you could they're gonna have to it would seem like have something to answer those questions with yeah it'll be teams will have to be a little more creative but i i i have i have no doubt that they can that they can pull it off with enough determination i the the thing that's the most interesting to me is that this affects teams disproportionately because yeah, that's interesting. Sure. They're saying it only applies to sort of the. I guess they tried to tried to say you know elite teams and players, but it's it's still even among them it's disproportionate. The Nuggets are world champions. They only have one player. This policy applies to the Minnesota Timberwolves have four. <laughs> Yeah. So, so that, yeah, that's going to be funny, right? Our team's going to be like trying to get guys like not make the all star team and not make all NBA now. So. Yeah. So that's the, the other part. Will it apply to the players who make the all star team this year for the last two uh, it months? It does. It does, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that's what Bobby's article said. So, you know, I'm interested to see. So, so is, what's your prediction then? Is that you think this is not going to be that effective or, or do you think it's actually going to change anything? I, I actually don't see it change it. The one thing that I think it will change is the thing where teams right now, a lot of teams try to basically group their rest nights so that they just completely punt one game. And, yeah. and I think you'll see less of like the Clippers have done that with PG and Kawhi. The Bucks have done that yeah. with their guys. So I think we will see less of that. I do think it gets hard when you're Golden State or Minnesota and you have four players that play that it applies to, and you can't even rest two of them now. But yeah. uh, in in the Wolves case, Mike Conley, because he's older, gets a little bit of a, a pass here. Uh, that that players who are over a certain over thirty five in opening night or thirty four thousand regular season uh, minutes are. Uh, can be pre-approved for designated back-to-back uh, allowances. It says, but we st- we still don't know if if you can have a second star player out on the same night with that. Yeah, and and there's also if there's like a unique injury history, uh, they they can also petition the league for him to be allowed to be on back to backs. Now, I do think this has a potential of backfiring in some ways by simply calling even more attention to this. Like, oh, well, why is he allowed to sit out? Well, he petitioned the league for for mm-hmm. this unusual injury. Well, should he really have it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think this is a big, you're absolutely right. This is a big Pandora's box. The league is opening where they're trying to be judge and jury on every one of these cases. 
and some of them are genuinely 50-50. And, and I think it's, it's hard for the league to step in and try to be the cop on this because they don't have the same information that the teams do. They don't. And even when they investigate, they won't. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be the potential for this independent medical review. Uh, I mean, we'll see. Like if this changes behavior, I think it will in some ways, as far as like the, the pure punts, you know, which the Warriors did a bunch of times were just like, oh yeah, like second night of a back-to-back in New Orleans, all these guys are just going to fly home. They're not even going to be on the bench, like that kind of yeah. thing. Uh, so I think it will change things a little bit. I mean, I think just in terms of the resting on, on back-to-back, and just like I, I mean i think we will see fewer games where it's just like oh yeah these aren't even the warriors <laughs> right <laughs> like yeah like we're at least gonna see you'll see at least a couple of the guys uh now it could have a perverse incentive also in just the sense that because like remember that high quality matchup index that dan tracked for us last year where this could even lower the high quality matchup index which we defined as one of the team's two best players uh not being out and so a high quality matchup we said both of the team's best players players are playing uh and and against another team that also has both their best players playing and that was i think we ended up around like 37 percent of of games last year were high quality in the sense that each team had their two best players playing i mean that's the math on that is crazy right that that's that low Mm -hmm. and you know when you go from guys playing 75 games on average to playing 65 games you know you like you really reduce that number when you're talking about four guys potentially one of them missing a game uh and that's kind of like when i'm trying to decide a game that's where that came to watch a game that's where that came from i'm like all right if one of the team's two best guys isn't playing like how much am i really getting out of watching this i'll just watch a different game that was that's always kind of my thinking um so i think we may see fewer total punts but we might see even lower percentage of high quality matchups because the rest is more distributed i personally as a fan of the league i would rather just be like okay these guys are punting this game i'll watch something else as and but obviously the fans who are going to that game don't feel that way um yeah so so i think it will change behavior some i also think that given the current constraints this is probably the best they could do would you agree with that if they were trying to do something about this this was about the best they could do i agree with that the interesting part of this to me actually is the lillard rule that that yeah, the, that the seems like they want the they want to crack down on these uh year-end shutdowns um and it is it is very specific i think where it's talking about those kind of cases and not and not the ones where a player is uh, resting for a couple games ahead of the playoffs. Because it, it said they're going to, seems like, be lenient in cases of sitting a player out the last game of the season when you've clinched your playoff spot. Stuff like that. Where it's, where it's common practice that you would not risk the player in that situation. But I have sympathy for the teams in terms of the shutdown scenario at the end of the year because it makes sense even if there was no draft lottery. Like if you're if you're signed up to pay Damian Lillard whatever ungodly number he's making for the next 4 years, why are you required to risk him in an April game that means nothing? That that's the well, part that I have a problem money? with. <laughs> because because uh competitiveness and the money that the fans paid and all that are not necessarily one and the same. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. Now, just, now of course this is just 
there should be fewer games they're not going to do that as i've said before i think they would actually make more money if they had fewer games but because nobody is losing any money under the current system and because of like just the overall entertainment landscape is making the tv rights go up anyway even though there's been a trend of mostly declining viewership over the last 10 years uh so like they're still making more money on this tv deal anyway so they have no incentive to like have fewer games they don't want to risk that so this is window dressing over the bigger problem that there are just too many games to be played at this point in time uh but i think the the biggest thing about this is hey those tv negotiations are coming up and the league just wants a, a way to i think this is the number one audience here even more so than the fans is potential tv part i think that's a great call yes because this it's it's this year that that tv deal is going to happen so that that's absolutely right and i'm sure they may have even gotten a little bit of pushback in their initial negotiations about how do we how do we protect our game from you know i want to be if i'm doing the warriors i want to make sure i'm getting steph curry and not the kaminga show i am excited that this includes in-season tournament games though because at least that that will hopefully make sure that those are uh more interesting because i am going to be covering that pretty closely Ho- hopefully uh we'll, we'll be doing that a- as a group um so that's about all i've got here i mean there, there are going to be some loopholes that will probably be found i'm gonna find the zapruder filming of oh was he did he really get injured last night like why did the league grant this exemption Mike Bass, can you give us the statement on why the league granted this exemption? Like, that's all going to just be unbelievably tedious and annoying. And I don't know <laughs> how many more games that, that these guys are actually going to play as a result of all this. So I, I think it's mostly PR. Maybe we'll change behavior some a little bit. I don't know what else they could do, though, under the current circumstances when they just have too many games. Anything else on that? Or we, do we need to move on to Let's another move on. topic here? So this is even more distasteful than the resting of players. Kevin Porter Jr. signed this contract. It was uniquely structured where this year it was a rookie extension. He had about 16 million guaranteed. And I think it's 1 million guaranteed next year. And basically the rest of it is non-guaranteed. And now he's been accused of really disturbing domestic violence allegations, pretty much on the level it sounds like of where Miles Bridges was. And while there is a presumption of innocence, generally if the allegations are this extensive, I'm going to assume that these allegations are true for the time being and so what's going to happen so the other thing here is that this is about strike 13 for porter if you talk to people you know who have been around the rockets the last couple years and that that was originally why he got traded from cleveland in the first place and this is obviously more serious than throwing soup in the locker room or whatever but well and and particularly because prosecutors have alleged that this has been a pattern of domestic violence not simply this instance wow yeah um i i don't think he's gonna play another game for the rockets or any other team uh ever i think okay i don't want to say ever but i think it's going to be a long road to get back and yeah. what's and, he has this contract that is very lightly guaranteed, presumably because Houston knew that there was considerable risk with him. And so he's guaranteed for 15.8 this year and then only 1 million next year if they cut him right now or 3 million even if he stays on the roster past opening day. I, I think Dan Feldman brought up some good points in the, uh, in the newsletter that dunked on subscribers get that the league could potentially void the contract, which might be more advantageous to Houston than just cutting him. The other thing is that they they may want to keep his number on their 
roster this year, even if he doesn't play a game for him, uh, just because that 15.8 could be used in a trade. But I would, I can't imagine him actually playing for the Rockets this year. I, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens with this case, but there would there would have to be some pretty wild left turns, right? And beyond beyond that, I, I mean, from a PR perspective, I just I just don't know how he was already a guy that most other teams weren't weren't really excited to bring in. I mean, that's why he fell in the draft. That's why Cleveland moved off him the way they did, and so. At, after this, I just I just don't know what the even even after whatever the when the legal system is done with him, I just don't know what the demand is going to be for his services. Yeah, assuming that he were to plead guilty or, or no contest, seems like thirty games for Bridges, uh, or at least announced as thirty games. We know that there are some weird math behind that, but so I, I don't think the league can go much above that. But the Rockets would stand to get uh, that percentage thirty out of I, I forget what the exact formula is but a fair, fairly large chunk of that salary just back just in terms of pure cash i mean the salary cap room at this late stage doesn't really do much for them and so i mean i guess that would be the only reason to keep him on the roster i mean if this were the nfl he would have just gotten waived already just by the team i, I mean i'm sure that they're maybe they need to do a little more investigation yeah or or or, or either he would have signed for 100 million dollars with the cleveland browns one or the other uh i think you mean 250 million. okay <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, particularly considering the history. So uh, to me, it's when you consider like this is not a player of the skill of Miles Bridges. He is under contract. He has this uh, this uniquely structured deal. And quite frankly, I mean, this is part of it too. Like uh, Andrew Brandt, uh, our colleague who talks about football a lot, always says like greater talent, uh, greater tolerance. And you know, obviously, Porter Jr. is talented, but he's not that talented. You know, he's yeah. not necessarily a and star. To be clear, to be clear, even if he was a superstar, I mean, these allegations are fucking awful, right? Like, yeah. this, like this is bad, and and so we 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 don't we don't know how we don't know if he's going to be able to play, you know, available for you know. I mean, there's I think the prospect of I'm not a prosecutor. I think the prospect of jail time is very real, right? So. We, we don't know when we're going to see him again. Yeah, I mean, that that could happen too. I, I would be surprised at that. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem like that, that happens, at least for like a significant amount. But it's just, yeah, I mean, and then when you consider also like that he's had all these other issues before as well that have kind of prevented him from playing. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if his career is over, but I mean, I think it's going to be years before we see him and he would have to go play in some other league and like be a good citizen and play well before uh, I think uh, someone else would take a chance. Because it's not Miles Bruce. Miles Bruce was playing at like close to an all-star level and plays a more valuable position and like quite frankly the Rockets don't need Kevin Porter Jr. in their pipeline like they have Jalen Green at his position they just signed Fred Van Vliet they got uh Amen Thompson like this in some ways this almost like makes things easier for them right and you, I realize that's a very cynical way of looking at things but I think like Porter Jr. Was- in, pure, in pure in pure basketball terms I think you're absolutely correct because he was going to be a guy that we're going to have to get away from move off of and and not just the way they played last year was just Porter and Green going out there doing whatever, kind of whatever they wanted. And I mean, Green's still going to be a part of the team, this big part of the team this year, obviously. But I think it's just it's going to be a different mindset with Ime Udoka there and some of these veterans they brought in. All right, a few other news items we got to get to before the mailbag. I think the next biggest thing is 
the continually injury snake bitten New Orleans Pelicans. Trey Murphy, the third in a workout, apparently suffered a meniscus injury. There was talk that he was evaluating whether to do the repair or the trim. It sounds like he did not get the repair, which stitches the meniscus back together. Instead, it's the trim, but pretty long timeline for that 10 to 12 weeks. And so that will go well into the season for a guy who's really one of uh, New Orleans only two way options. And fortunately for Pelicans fans, we know that New Orleans injury timelines have tended to be really ironclad. And so I think at, you know, end of week 10, absolutely lock solid rock to be on the court, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I, now, maybe what this is, is they're just going so far because normally this would be six to eight weeks for this procedure. And they're saying, oh, it's a small tear, blah, blah. Uh, you know, uh, you can't really uh, take that very far but this is longer than the typical timeline for this injury and maybe they're just doing that just so that they can avoid that narrative like oh hey actually came back early for once maybe that <laughs> but, but what does this do for i mean presumably zion williamson is going to be available at least at the start of the year but what does this do for the pels and their chances to get back to the playoffs in the west so obviously losing him for a chunk of time is not devastating, but it's unhelpful because I think he's a specific role player that they really need and don't have another copy of. And it forces them into lineups with Zion and another shooter, another non-shooter, excuse me, in the front court, and really two non-shooters probably. I mean, the next guy you turn to is probably Herb Jones. Well, now you're playing Herb Jones, Zion, and Valanciunas in the same lineup. I I think it's I think it's can make their spacing really clunky. And starting Murphy, I thought was a really key thing for them this year to get enough spacing around that group and to also have kind of a legitimate wing defender so Ingram can float a little more. We've discussed Ingram's <laughs> defensive chops already. Uh so I think that was a really hurtful injury for them. Where are they going to get the shooting from, from now? You know, is is Jordan Hawkins capable of of moving into a role like that? He didn't look like it in summer league, but he's he's probably the other real shooter on this roster who can give them that kind of spacing. You're not getting it from Herb Jones. You're not getting it from Dyson Daniels. Najee Marshall is, you know, kind of hit and miss, and I think he's probably more a back-end rotation guy anyway. So... I think that it just opens up some real questions there in their in their lineup and how they're going to play at the at, at the start of the season without Murphy available. He's a really key player despite not being a quote-unquote star. They already had some of the issues that, that you're talking about in terms of wing defense, in terms of having enough shooting. He was their best shooter. He takes them deep. He's also like a solid defender, if not like a great on-ball guy. And he was the one guy they had that would fit into every lineup. And you take him out of it. And now a lot of the other guys don't fit into these lineups as well as they would with him out there. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's a problem. We'll see whether he's able to come back. I mean, he had a wonderful second season. And I think there's some are kind of predicting that he could be on more of a, a star type of path. I wasn't quite there because I don't think he has the on-ball juice. But exactly. you know, certainly was going to be uh, you know on track to be, you know, get a 20 plus million dollar extension. That could still happen. But, you know, so what does that put us? We're six weeks from the start of the season, basically. Right now, I guess this happened last week. So, you know, maybe he only misses the first month. Hopefully, I'm just that that 10 to 12 week timeline. That's 
that's the thing that really kind of raised my eyebrows. So if he just misses the first month of the season, he's back. But it's like, how severe is this injury exactly? Or is it just they're kind of playing around with it and maybe he can come back even sooner? But they've because they've so often overpromised and underdelivered in terms of injury timelines. They also shook up their medical staff, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Aaron Nelson was uh, the villain du jour this year for them. Yeah. So we'll we'll see if that pays any dividends. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you could. I think there's a decent argument that he is their third most important player. And quite frankly, if Zion is healthy, maybe even their second most important player because there's just they don't have anyone else who can replace what he's doing. Christian yeah. Wood to the Lakers. Uh, what, what do you think of his fit there? I just. I- you know, to get him at a minimum, I think that's just something you have to do. Uh, right. Just, just the value proposition on that was just too great to pass up. There were rumors that he had something sitting out there for Miami that was contingent on a Lillard trade uh, that might have been for more. And he may have just decided that he just couldn't wait anymore. Uh, to, you know, this is the time when you're seeing some of these deals get signed this week because this is generally a time when players start coming back after Labor Day and they start showing up in the facility again. They're getting pickup runs with their teammates. Things are things are starting to, to reheat this this time of year. So uh, and and I think the you know what we've seen with we saw Wood, Danny Green, a couple of these other guys um, is is all part of that. With the Lakers specifically, you hear that AD doesn't want to play five. I mean, Christian Wood isn't really a five either, uh, but maybe maybe he can take some some of those minutes and you can sort of have a front court of Wood Davis, which, I mean, that's a lot of rim protection and a lot of versatility offensively. Like that, that is a tough guard right there when you're trying to deal with Davis and Wood as, as an opposing front court. Uh, it pushes other guys down, right? Because then now LeBron's playing three if you line up that way. But again, he's just, I know there's issues with his, his defense and sometimes his commitment has been questioned in places, but offensively, he's just, he's just so skilled. I just think he presents a lot of unique problems as a, as a stretch five and even as a stretch four, uh, that he's a completely different level from like Hachimura or Prince as an offensive player. I agree with you in terms of the talent. It's just, you know, what does it say that uh, in terms of ADs possibly wanting to play next to another big could he be a possibility to unlock some of wood's offense like is he going to be good enough playing next to another big you know he's never been great there but he can't defend as the only big himself if you put him next to like a vanderbilt or hachimura like how how good does that look and so yeah i think if you're if this is going to mean like more ad playing with two bigs when it really matters i don't know how much i love that but certainly as just an innings eater during the regular season and maybe the lakers with lebron you know lebron going back to like jr smith and and then uh some of the reclamation projects that they've had with the lakers i think it's certainly a, a worthy gamble pretty good to as the only concern is just that he plays too much and puts ad out of, out of position a little bit yeah i i just when you look at their other options though it's like okay davis wood or davis vanderbilt or davis hachimura it's like eh, you know yeah <laughs> 
Davis Jackson Hayes, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, no, I, I, I got you. Yeah, I mean, it, only by having Jackson Hayes play less, it, it probably helps. I, I mean, I don't know that Wood is actually worse defensively as the center than Jackson Hayes is. Uh, all right, let's, uh, I, I think we could probably skip the breathless analysis on Tristan Thompson and Svi Mihaljuk signings. Campaign, can he help anybody still? He just got waived by the Spurs. Remember, he was traded there in a salary dump from Phoenix. All right, here's my crazy-ass idea. Uh, Memphis using the Dylan Brooks trade exception to claim him at his full contract value so that they have a tradable expiring and they have another point guard while John Moran is suspended. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I think normally teams and agents will have something to say or, or agents and players will have something to say in these circumstances and maybe he doesn't want to go there or something but yeah i kind of like that uh and they don't they're they've got room below the tax uh, to go ahead and do that if they wanted to I, I don't mind that one at all i mean i think pain it was funny in in uh wood just right he's like oh yeah pain at a 30 point game in the playoffs last year uh, yeah there's a, a, a unfortunately a team lost by more than 30 because <laughs> that, that was game six against the nuggets he was the only son who showed up in that game but yeah i mean i think that's actually perfect because you know they signed derrick rose they want him as a leader now maybe part of it is just they promised rose that he was going to be the backup point guard for those first 25 games and that's how they got him there so maybe they feel like they can't just bring pain in uh, like that but i i think you know just to have another quasi dependable option would be useful because of course marcus smart is going to start while jaw is out yeah it it does depend a lot on what they think of rose i mean to me he's leadership guy but he's not he's not the guy you really want to be playing a ton of minutes at this point so to me that's a clear upgrade if he does clear i think charlotte would be a great spot for him yeah yeah i agree with you uh you know i mean you know who else could really use him would be the denver nuggets yes yes now denver that gets interesting because that gets expensive for them with the tax and they would have to cut somebody. They have 15 guarantees right now. Yeah, I don't see them doing it. That's just not their style. They want to see what Jan Pickett can do. They brought back Reggie Jackson. Uh, actually, I got another one for you, though, uh, with rookie Rubio kind of questionable Cleveland. Cleveland? Cleveland is interesting. They have a they have a tax issue uh, now that they signed Tristan Thompson, but he and Sam Merrill are uh, well, Thompson is lightly guaranteed. Sam Merrill is not guaranteed at all. So if they cut Sam Merrill, they would have just enough room to bring in campaign on a minimum and be below the tax with fourteen players. Uh, sadly, friend of the show Hal Neto, uh, unfortunately, this is actually pretty sad. Uh, suffered a pretty devastating knee injury uh during the FIBA world cup so he's probably going to miss this entire season yeah that is too bad he's definitely someone who is perfect in that third sometimes second point guard role uh oh another one would be milwaukee that's another one that makes a lot of sense uh, to me uh and miami depending on you know what happens uh, with all their guys but that's probably enough on on campaign uh but it, i mean i do think there's he's had moments where he's looked pretty good last couple of years have been up and down he's been injured some but obviously he was really good in 21 and had okay playoffs all right we've uh we need to get to some more of these mailbag questions i think we'll still continue to sprinkle these in uh let me start here all right scott says what is the optimal rebuild time how many years should a team tank he's a jazz fan and he says he think it seems like management doesn't want to be bad for a prolonged period of time uh and okc they seem to be okay with being bad for a long time the optimal time is until you get somebody good enough to justify building the team around. Yeah. And 
So OKC has that now with Shea, so I think they could start moving forward. The, Let me ask you this. If sure. the Houston Rockets, right, they've had three years in the wilderness. Let's say that they had control of their draft pick this year and they didn't have, you know, owner aside, right? Because it, it also seems like three years is like all the time that you ever actually get from the owner, you know, if Hinky and Houston and, and even OKC really only spent three years, but they started getting better this year. But it, let's say throws across, uh, throw away any of those considerations. If you're in charge of the Houston Rockets, would you have like still wanted to sign Fred Van Vliet and, you know, maybe not Dylan Brooks at that money, but would you have, you would you have made the move to sign guys and try to get better this year? Or would you have gone still the development route? I probably would have tried to ride it out another year. I do, I do, I do think that particular team needed more strong veterans and presence. So, so I will say that part that it was just tilted to where it was all young guys doing whatever. And it was a little too free form. Right. And so I think I think they were going to need to tilt a little bit that way, regardless, but not maybe not to the point of giving a max to Fred Van Vliet or uh, pay, paying Dylan Brooks what they paid him. So I, I would I I do think that draft situation definitely influenced their choices, without a doubt. Uh, yeah, the, I think so. The more interesting one to me is well, actually, there are two that were pretty interesting. I thought. Cleveland was interesting to me because they were right at the point where a lot of teams typically get it, get impatient and they kind of stayed with it and had that and had that year where they got to play in, which was proof of concept. And then they went ahead and did the Mitchell deal when they were really ready to do it. And, and, and the one I'm wondering about now is Detroit, where they've been getting their butts kicked for the last few years. But you look at the roster, that team still sucks. And so how much how much longer are they going to be willing to do this and ride this out before they just say, well, we have to we have to go forward regardless, even if we even if we don't really have the guys to do it yet. I mean, they're going to have a ton of cap room next year and they'll presumably have another high draft pick. But you, you just think at some point they're going to say that's enough. We got to bring in some guys now. And I, I think that's the part where it gets really tricky where the right move is really to continue tanking, but you've been getting your ass kicked for so long that you just can't mentally fathom another year of it. So I, I think when you, the idea of, hey, we're ending the rebuild, we're starting to move forward, that's maybe not quite like the death knell for the rebuild that you might think. Like like even Houston, who did everything they possibly could to maximize their competitiveness this year, and they're still looking like they're probably 13th in the West or something, right? You know, so, and part of that is just, hey, if you have these young guys that you've drafted, like they're going to play and they're probably going to drag you down. And maybe that's kind of how it has to be anyway, particularly with these new lottery rules. Like Detroit is a perfect example, right? You're like, oh, how long can we go through this rebuild? I mean, they just traded for Boyan Bogdanovich last year. It was a good player. Uh, you know, they signed Jeremy Grant in free agency. They signed Kelly Olympic. They signed guys who are like, they wanted to at least take a nominal step forward. They thought they were going to do that last year, and then they just didn't. And a big part of why they didn't, in addition to the Cade injury, by the way, Cade, maybe he should have actually just been on this team, <laughs> this USA team. Uh, maybe maybe they just didn't want to play or something. Actually, I think maybe uh, I heard that. But uh, in any event, so like 
part of the reason, yeah, okay, maybe you brought in Boyan, but like you're starting a, a 19 year old rookie center in Jalen Duran, or you're like trading for James Wiseman. So you may try to take the step forward, but if you're still trying to develop players and having them play major roles and be getting entitlement minutes, there's only so good that you can be unless those guys turn into like Shea Gilgis Alexander and Josh Giddy and Jalen Williams, and then you're actually winning through the young guys. But I think generally my approach is when you think that your young core is good enough to be the basis for like a high 40s to 50 win team that's when you begin trying to like supplement around those guys and not for yeah i i think that's absolutely right and it's it's just unfortunate i mean we've we've seen the process take as little as you know two years it took in memphis basically right um to much longer than that (laughs) and and you hope it could be done in three to four years, but there's never a guarantee. Well, and there have been many times where just I, I would say, though, generally when they've kind of stuck to the plan, usually they get back into being pretty decent. When you get into these Sacramento situations or these Charlotte situations or the even you know Washington, that's really the reason that they get stuck there for longer is because they try to go in before they actually have all those young pieces of so it's really about do we have the guys okay let's go for it now if you don't have the guys who are young then you try to sign some veterans and you can't sign veterans who are good enough unless you know you're the lakers signing lebron then you're gonna just wallow in misery for even longer Uh, although i do think that the new draft rules that came in in 19 do make it easier to like try to be a little more competitive and you can still potentially get a high draft pick um okay i thought this was a good one or wait it's your turn sorry uh you can go ahead if you have one okay Speedy asks, what are the most dramatic skill improvements you've seen in a, in a player? So he's t- his example he gives is Paul George's ball handling compared to where he was at in college. And, and, and I've got one here that I want to throw out there. This is a, a deep cut. I think you will appreciate this one. Okay, I have one in my head, so I want to hear what yours is. Okay. The shooting of Michael Red. Oh, former... Pro basketball prospectus cover boy, Michael. Yes, Red. I I couldn't remember if that was actually the case or not, but I, I knew you had an affinity for him because he was one of the guys who was like, yeah, I think his second year he was just killing it in limited minutes, and and you were all over that as I remember, and you know that would have been what oh one oh two, I think he was drafted. I believe that's Is he right. the best yeah. player. He might have been the best player out of the two thousand draft, actually. Wow, yeah, that was the that was the uh, the the Mike Miller rookie of the year draft. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, he tore his ACL at, uh, at age 29 and basically he was done at, at that point. But, uh, I mean, he was, he was this lefty. He never had a classic form and he just like, was this athletic shooting guard who would kind of, you know, twist his way to buckets inside. And his rookie year, he played 35 minutes. I can't remember if he was injured or something. No. Uh, and he took three no. threes and then, and he basically never took a three in college. And then he's shooting 44% from three on what was a pretty large number of attempts uh, his second year and then he was off and running as like one of the best shooters best scorers in the league that's a good one that's a good one i like that one i uh the one i was going to come up with was uh michael red shot 31 percent from three in his three seasons at ohio state and only 64 percent from the line but he played three seasons at ohio state yeah wow okay i remember him coming out after his freshman year boy i'm old okay but yeah 64 percent collegiate foul shooter shot 84 percent in the nba 
Um, well, and his form was just so jacked up too. You never thought like he would. Look, he was one of those guys who were like, "Oh, this is just broken. Like it's never gonna work out." And he just and he kept shooting that same way, and it just would go. And he was shooting these like ridiculous, yeah. like fadeaway threes coming off screens. It's it crazy. Uh, the guy I was going to mention was Kyle Lowry and his improvement yes, as a shooter. As a as a shooter, that was could I mean, not Mike shoot, Conley. Yeah, could well even more than. Even more than I mean, Kyle Lowry could not shoot to save his ass when he first got to the NBA. Uh, couldn't even make a free throw, and to turn into an all-time leading three-point maker. I mean, you talk about a 99th percentile outcome. That's a really uh, good one. I got another one for you here: okay. Russell Westbrook's passing. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, really, really got much better at reading everything that was happening instead of just because young Westbrook, he was just putting his head down and going to the rim and assists happened. And almost he by he wasn't a point guard when, yeah. when he got drafted. He was a shooting guard. Yeah. Cause that was more where he played at UCLA and the Oklahoma city put him on the ball, but even like you'd go to arenas, you'd talk to scouts. They'd be like, Oh, this guy's not a point guard, you know? And, and he, over time he, he got the hang of it. Uh, Brooke Lopez defense. Yes. Yeah, rim protection specifically. Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, especially because it happened so late in his career, too. That's a really good one. Even in his late 20s, he was like the walking definition of toast, right? In terms of like the the modern game and spreading people out and stuff. And then it just kind of changed. He figured it out. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I just never remember him even, you know, having a pulse defensively. And all of a sudden, you're just like, wow, this guy, he's just massive. And he's like messing up guys' floaters because he's so big. And it was, it was just, I mean, Mike Budnelser had some uh, some pretty big miracles. I would say uh, Paul Millsaps, speaking of, of Mike Budnelser, Paul Millsaps' defense as well, that he became like a really good defender in Atlanta after being perceived as a huge liability when he was in Utah. Yeah, I Paul Millsap to me always had fast hands. And yeah. so it was just f- fixing the other stuff that was. I guess. I guess I wasn't completely shocked by that. All right, I'm trying to think if there's if there's anyone. Can you? Is there anybody who's gotten like way better at getting to the foul line over the course of their career? Uh, yes. There's somebody specifically who whose name is escaping me. And that's one. Uh, and I'm thinking more of kind of just from like a bullshit tricks kind of standpoint. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there. I mean, there's been a few that I could think. Of. Like Lowry is one of those guys, actually. But he he always drew a lot of fouls. Derek Rose actually got a lot better between his rookie year and his and his MVP season at, at drawing fouls, and and that was. A big part no, of it. No, I remember you wrote a column about yeah. how he wasn't that good because he never drew fouls, and then he immediately started drawing fouls. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. That, yeah, that, uh, and I think that was during his, his MVP year. All right, that's probably enough on, on that one. Uh, if you want to pick one here, let's go for it. Uh, big Dog asks, if you're the Hornets GM or another seemingly hopeless situation in the NBA, what is the game plan? Is the goal relevance? Or should the aim still be to build a championship team? Well, I will tell you a big part of that t- depends on what the owner tells you the game plan should be. Um, yeah. So, you know, how much suffering are you willing to endure in order to eventually have an elite team? Or is, or are you would, you, would you rather be, would you rather be good for 10 years or try to be awesome for maybe a shorter time span and have a, have a few years at the beginning where you're terrible. So I, the, the, 
short-term pain versus long-term gain equation. There's no correct answer, but you better have an understanding of that coming in. I do think in Charlotte's case specifically, I mean, they've obviously leaned way too much over, oh, can we please just get the eight seed? And I think it's just such a Pyrrhic victory. I mean, nobody's nobody's in the community or fan base is going to get that excited about it anyway. So I I think you're better off in those situations taking your lumps a little more and and waiting until you have something truly exciting uh, to sell to your fans. Now, on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily sit mean you have to sit there and wait wait until you have a sixty win team because you could be waiting a long time. Uh, in Memphis, for example, I think we had a very good competitive team that probably in most scenarios was not going to win a championship, but was going to be one of the best teams in the league for a block of years. And for a franchise that hadn't really done any winning up until that point, uh, shout out Hubie Brown that one year. Uh, but I, I think that was really important for the franchise to have that. I think that that last point is a really good one. And I've talked about this a lot of, and sometimes just the talent that you have at that point will determine what's really a logical endpoint for your group. And, and like, I think this, the Hawks to me are a really interesting example of this, right? Like Trey Young is the best player that they've had there since Dominique Wilkin. And I think that, yeah, you know what? Trey Young is probably not good enough to be the best player on a championship team. And, you know, maybe there'll come a point where Trey Young doesn't want to be there anymore and then you trade him for what you can get i'd be very interested to know what his trade value would be probably not as much as maybe someone like donovan mitchell uh, but now making the trade for DeJounte Murray, I was not in favor of that because I didn't think his fit with Trey was that good. I just thought he was kind of overrated. But I do think the idea of, hey, you know what? Like, let's throw some future assets in. Like, let's try to maximize this era around Trey Young because it just, a lot of times, like, you're not going to necessarily have a top 10 player in the NBA to build around or a top five player. And so you do want to try to maximize the year. I think that's something that even you could, NBA teams could, or maybe even more American fans could take from Europe where it's like hey you know what like yeah maybe it's we're not like an absolute championship team and you know certainly I think you should go for a championship and try to assemble a championship team but once you've attempted to do that and like hey you know what we got some pretty good players but we're probably not going to win a championship I do think taking that group to its logical end point is something that makes sense assuming that that group is like you know a team that's going to be a consistent playoff team at least right if you're not there then if you don't have a consistent playoff team then yeah tear that shit down if you don't have a consistent playoff team and no hope of a playoff team exactly yeah i like it it atlanta right i mean they got to a conference finals right i mean i think i think to this point writing it out has probably been the right play i mean yeah they overpaid to go in for for murray and they could have they could have played their cards maybe a little differently at a, at a couple of points but that was never going to turn into a rebuild let's close on this one okay this is a great question and it's not something that i've ever discussed before amazingly given the bent of my coverage who dylan is brooks? the goat who is what nothing <laughs> i said dylan brooks uh, uh- <laughs> Uh, who is the GOAT GM? Asks uh, MGJRB. I mean, you'd have to say Red Auerbach, but like, you know, in like the modern, let's say, let's limit it to the salary cap era. Got to be R.C. Buford. I mean, half the league is basically Spurs knockoffs at this point, right? Well, I, I, think I mean, would you, isn't isn't Pop Pop's the guy really in control there, though, right? So, yes and no. I mean, I think in terms of the in terms of the personnel decisions and the scouting and a lot of the things yeah. that the Spurs but Pop 
Pop has Build final say. The- is, is that yes. fair to say? Yeah, okay. that's fair to say. Um, and, and I would consider him a bigger driver of like some of these culture things than RC, although you, you might know better than me on, on that. But uh, I think I think it went hand in hand. But I also think some of the, just the the decision making and the cap management and the way they approach things really, really came from from our from RC, too. I mean, Pop Pop wasn't out there scouting international tournaments, right? No, uh, I, I mean, that's a, to, to really have the first team that was truly built uh, the first champion i would say that was truly built on you know some of your best players two of your three best players being foreign players uh international players that's yeah that is quite a legacy there that's that's uh that's interesting i mean we, we got a lot of other candidates let's let's, uh, let's keep him in mind i mean i think some of these other it's a tough question to answer. Like there isn't anyone who's just like totally uh, jerry's uh, jerry west has to be a big part of it obviously yes um, yeah, so he was a name I was yeah. going to bring up. Um, a lot of the guys who win a lot also had certain advantages that make it easier. Uh, you know, Bob Myers is a name you bring up, but he like Steph Curry was already there, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, so you wonder about that. Jerry West, obviously, he got he did the Kobe trade. He got Shaq to L.A. I think if he was in Utah, both those things would have been considerably harder. Uh, so, so you can you know at least ask about that. Uh, how about, uh, Pat Riley and Andy Ellisberg in Miami? Yeah, I guess, well, just to, to follow up on Jerry West, I mean, I think what I'm looking for is that you have built multiple winning teams, right? Like, so Bob Myers isn't in that top group because he's built one team. Like he hasn't gone through rebuilding back now. He's quit. uh, And his attempts to kind of do the next generation didn't really work out. Now they won another championship, but you know, it's, we'll see if he gets another job. Maybe he'll he'll have another chance to put his stamp on things. Uh, West, you know, I mean that he was a big part of, you know, the eighties Lakers were probably mostly built before the salary cap came in in 83 so i don't know how much credit you give him there but he actually after magic retired they kind of built the whole team with like nick van exel and eddie, eddie jones Those were yeah like really good draft picks divots was a big find. like divots was really the first international player of any uh, repute that uh jerry west brought in like that's a, a pretty big legacy right there and then you know to then he jettisoned a lot of that team that he had built into like a mid-level playoff team to dump everyone get Shaq, make the kobe trade uh and then you know he ends up leaving i think uh, at the end of the three but he did actually have a successful run in memphis after that and then you know was still involved in golden state even if he wasn't the gm he still was a a big voice there too so yes uh yeah i think pat riley and ellisburg though why why don't you make the case uh, for them because i think they would have to be considered here too uh just i mean they've consistently been really good over a quarter century now basically and done some really Uh, how many separate teams have they built that were like really good teams like four or five at this point exactly really deft managers of the salary cap um very and did it in a place now miami still has some advantages with free agency i'm sure that helped them get lebron and bosh but i also think if riley wasn't there it wouldn't have mattered it's like miami wasn't still wasn't la or new york and i think those guys were drawn to the additional fact that that riley was there and then certainly that's what drew jimmy butler i think too so the sunshine gets some of the credit but i think Riley gets some of the credit too, and what he's built down there. Uh, bringing in Spolstra, who's an all-time coach. Uh, again, multi- multiple really good teams st- dating back to the 
you know, the 90 slugfest teams and then really changed a lot of their ways over the last, say, 10 years post LeBron to, to modernize their approach to the game. Uh, so I, I think they've just been really, really, really effective for a long time. Uh, obviously not multiple organizations, uh, the way, but multiple different iterations of teams that they've had to build and rebuild. And there were three or four different times when it looked like they were, that it was over and they were just going to suck for half a decade. And they've always been able to dig themselves out. No, it's incredible. He's built four separate contenders there that had, you know, multiple year runs. I mean, the, the morning teams like that, that team had, you know, multiple had, I think they only had one number one seed, uh, but you know, they had another 60 win team in 97. And like, so Riley went there and basically instantly built that team. Like they were nothing. He gets there. I think they're the eighth seed the first year. Now this is when he was coaching as well, which helped matters. But they also, but. they also, um, he came in and right away basically nuked the whole roster to get cap space and was one of the first people to really go hard at doing that. So I, I think he was ahead of the curve with that too. He got saved also by the league. Uh, the, the Juwan Howard, Howard deal. deal. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they built that team. Then, you know, that uh, team kind of fell apart with Alonzo's health problems. And then they really only had one year of being really bad. They got Dwayne Wade. Again, you know, a little luck there. Uh, but then they win a championship with that group and Shaq pulled off the Shaq trade to get him. And then they had one year in the wilderness. They got Michael Beasley uh, in 2008. Not a great draft pick, by the way. They could have had some uh yeah. some better players there but Beasley was the obvious pick at that point they got the number two pick that year but then of course they built up the LeBron team got him to come and then I mean probably the most impressive of any of these was the rebuild uh, around Butler uh after you know Chris Bosh and, and uh had his rough end of the career I mean that's the other thing too like think about it. he had two all NBA players suffer like just like illnesses and like not be able to really continue their careers at the same level and was able to recover from that too so yeah you make a good point I I don't think there are, are there any other candidates besides those three that we two, mentioned. I can't. Two more names I'm going to bring up. Okay. Uh, so it, we talked about Red Auerbach a little. I mean, it's tough because it's like 50s through 70s. His track record is obviously yeah. awesome. Um, Jerry Krause was only one team, but man, that's a track record that he had in Chicago. Yeah, but it, but he already had Jordan. I, I I can't put him in the same the same category, particularly because he tried to rebuild, failed, and got fired. And also, everyone hated him. Like people management is a big part of the job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Donnie Walsh did a great job in Indiana in a small market. Rebuilt that team multiple times without ever going down. Um, ne- never quite had the one guy who could carry them over the hump. Uh, got to the one finals, got a couple conference finals, uh, went to the Knicks. He was older by then. Things didn't go as well. Uh, had some <laughs> interference to deal with, certainly. Uh, but he'd, he'd probably be the other one. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and Daryl Morey would have to be discussed. There. So guys that I think are trying to push into that conversation would be Daryl Morey, Masai Ujiri, Bob Myers, if he you know ends up someplace else. Uh, potentially Danny Ainge. So that, that th- those are probably kind of the next group of guys who we'll see how these next few years go, and and maybe we can evaluate their their place on this list a little more clearly. Yeah, I mean, Masai's star has, has dimmed a little bit uh, the last couple of years, and um, yeah, and Daryl hasn't won a championship, uh, of course, and uh, you know so, some of his uh, soft softer skills come into question sometimes. Even though he certainly he's maybe done more to revolutionize the, the game than anybody uh, in terms of just the, the way things work in front of him. He, he and Sam Hinkie yeah. have done more to change how people GM. 
without a doubt. Yes. Um, Yeah, I think that's a great, though. Jerry West, Spurs, however you want to categorize it, and and Heat. I mean, that to me, of of the salary cap era, those are the top three. Let's let's pick one. You want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. You know, West uh, had some real moments, but I think the L.A. factor and, you know, the fact that there wasn't necessarily like a specific kind of culture that was built up there, you know, not a huge, I don't think there, there was really a huge tree, you know, the, there wasn't really anything kind of reproducible about that organization, um, really only built two great teams. And even the first one was kind of, you know, he sort of was involved there, but, you know, the magic pick had magic and Kareem already. So I, how much credit can you give there? Um, so I think it sounded the, the Spurs and the Heat. I think, and the Spurs did reload with Kawhi, but I, I think the Heat just overall, like if you're just like, put these guys on a random team a a random nba team and have them start their careers i think like the riley ellsberg combo like that's that and and give them the same give it give them the same lottery luck i think that's i think that's probably right i think that's probably right you know there there are different it's close there are different cases to be made for each um yeah i I mean i guess that's true though right if they're if they're not in miami they're not going to get lebron and those guys uh whereas i mean they've had pretty good draft luck to be sure but they also like they haven't drafted hall of famers at like you know 28 and 57 right unless you unless i'm yeah. forgetting anybody or that jo- i mean that short so. jo- or drafted somebody at 26 that they parlayed into carly Kawhi leonard i mean yeah they, they've they've made a lot of their own luck yeah i mean the spurs they really do almost never miss uh even even on guys late in the first round yeah i mean it's just if there weren't sort of the like okay is it pop is it rc if you really had to go with like one guy i guess it would probably be riley but to you know kind of pick uh yeah i I mean i think i probably would would go with him but uh yeah i mean it's it's really close i i don't know how you decide between those two i guess i would go go riley if only just because it's easier to sort of uh aggregate the credit there yeah the other guy uh, we didn't mention who could knife his way into this conversation if they can get over the hump. Uh, Sam Presti yeah. had the greatest three-year draft run in NBA history, but did not produce any titles from it. I think, well, and, and if, he fucked it up too. Like he had, <laughs> he had the hard like, the Harden trade was a mistake. Yeah, well, that yeah. and then he just like Ennis, like oh, we'll, we're going to go all in around KD and Westbrook. We're going to trade for Ennis Cantor and Dion Waiters. Yeah, that's what yeah. we're going to do with our future like oh yeah. man no that's that was just that was yeah. pretty bad yeah so uh but yeah certainly doing a, a pretty good job here again and you know obviously if the, if this group becomes you know a, a multiple title winner then yeah he's in that discussion but yeah i mean i think for for miami to have be, built like really four separate teams that were nba finals level of team pretty good um are we done here i think so wait so so, so who's your pick are you going miami you're going uh or are you going riley you're going wow i almost skated out of there like straddling the fence the whole way uh Pop- popford you're going popford popford or relisburg um I'm gonna go Popford. I think I just yeah, I that's just fair. think they were so they were so good at every margin for so long. Um, I th- like I think I think Riley has been cager about getting the big fish, but I think the the one through fifteen roster management generally over that time period has been better in San Antonio. Now you especially in the nineties and two thousands. Now you would say recently Miami has had the advantage there without a doubt because they've done so much with with undrafted guys. Uh, but they've still actually kind of struggled with the draft itself. Um, so 
I, I don't well, know. I, I, don't, I don't know about that. They drafted Bam out of Iowa. They, they, the Bam pick was the Bam pick was back. great, but I mean, at, the, at this level, I mean, the bar is really high, right? So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go Pop for fair enough. Yeah, and they've kind of taken over the NBA more with all, all the Spurs uh, acolytes or uh, proteges. All right, this is fun. I'm glad we got to that. That was a, a really interesting discussion that I probably should have thought of before this. But thanks for uh, getting that question asked. Uh, and John will be back soon. Danny and Dan are hopefully going to be back tomorrow to do some mock rookie extensions if all goes according to plan. And of course, uh, we have uh, our way through the team outlooks. We'll talk to you all soon.